Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. The topic I want to discuss during today's episode is food insecurity and the response of international actors to address it. But let me just start with some basics. Food insecurity is a lack of a consistent access to enough food to live a healthy life. So the United Nations created a host of sustainable development goals to try to put out ideas for how lower income countries and poor people could achieve over a longer period of time. The second sustainable development goal is to work to address the issue of global hunger with the goal of achieving zero hunger by 2030. Ten years ago, this goal almost seemed possible with a strong decline in people who suffer from food insecurity. However, in the last seven years, this goal has become more and more out of reach. As the number of people suffering from hunger or are undernourished has increased, and today around 690 million people, which is almost 9% of the world's population, essentially goes hungry. So why are more and more people going hungry today? There are a few reasons for the increase in global food insecurity. One is just climate change. Climate change has impacted the ability for farmers to produce food, and natural disasters have destroyed crops, especially in the global south, which is a much more vulnerable part of the world. In addition to climate change, the COVID pandemic has contributed to today's food crisis in a number of ways. It's increased costs. It has increased demand for food products during lockdown while there were significant supply chain disruptions. And it has occurred as people have suffered from a reduction in income or job loss. In 2021, food prices rose close to 25%. And since the start of the pandemic, the amount of people facing severe food insecurities has doubled. This crisis disproportionately impacts people in the global south, specifically African nations, as the number of people suffering from hunger has quadrupled in West Africa since 2019 which is the highest level of hunger that these nations have seen in decades. This is not surprising, as according to the IMF, food is 45% of consumption in low-income countries, as compared to about 16% in advanced economies. So clearly, lower-income countries that are suffering from inflation, as we all are suffering from, who have higher debt, and they have little fiscal space to address COVID, are highly, highly vulnerable. But let's compound this problem. Russia invaded Ukraine. It just so happens that Russia and Ukraine are the first and fifth largest suppliers of wheat in the world. Combined, they are about 25%, just those two countries alone, of total global wheat exports. The two of them combined, by the way, are also 20% of exports of corn and barley. And Ukraine alone is about 50% of exports for sunflower oil. Russia is also a large exporter of fertilizer, which of course is vital for better crop yields. On June 11th, Ukrainian President Zelensky virtually addressed delegates from 40 countries at the IISS Asia Security Summit, known as the Shangri-La Dialogue, stating that the world will face a severe food crisis due to Russia's war on Ukraine, and Asia, Europe, and Africa will be hit the hardest. Zelensky's point about the war is made more manifest when we note that Russia is blocking major ports in the Black Sea from taking agricultural exports from Ukraine, 
and at least it appears to be directly attacking Ukrainian infrastructure to intentionally break down Ukraine's agriculture sector, including attacking farms. When the agricultural sector of a country that supplies 50% of its grain to 36 countries is intentionally being destroyed, food crisis seems inevitable. So I guess a question would be asked is, how do we stop this crisis? Or at least, how do international policy actors address this crisis? Right now, there are three major ways. I'm going to really focus on the third, but let me just tell you what those ways are. One is to provide greater food assistance or development assistance and humanitarian support. This is basically cash grants to low-income countries. And you see that in different support mechanisms that are put forward by the United States and other countries. Second, and we'll see more of this at the end of this month, is the G7, which is being chaired by Germany, has created back in May the Global Alliance for Food Security. This is something that they're clearly focused on. And at the end of June, we should see whether or not the G7 has been able to figure out other ways that they can be more supportive on this global food crisis. The third is actually in trade negotiations. You probably are saying, what? (laughs) Why trade negotiations? Well, as we talked about earlier, trade can be very important for exports of different grains and different foods. So how can trade negotiators help on this? While we're recording this podcast, the WTO, which stands for the World Trade Organization, is just finishing up its 12th ministerial conference in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, the WTO was the first time the leaders have been able to meet since 2017, which has largely been due to delays from the pandemic. The director general of the WTO is Ngozi Okonjo Oweala of Nigeria. She's the former finance minister of Nigeria and a former number two at the World Bank. And she basically was addressing the 100 trade ministers stating that the pandemic war in Ukraine and energy and food crisis have created what she called a polycrisis. As we can see, the food crisis is on the forefront of the minds of global leaders. Let me give you a little background on the WTO and how it works before I dive into what they're trying to do. The WTO is an intergovernmental organization made up of 164 members that tries to regulate or at least provide the negotiating framework for international trade arrangements on a global basis, not on bilateral arrangements, but on a global basis. The WTO officially began in 1995, although it comes out of a previous organization that started at the end of World War II. The WTO has basically a few functions that it really tries to focus on. The biggest one by far is to have an international trade negotiating framework to deal with issues that are hindering trade between countries. Unfortunately, one of the criticisms of the WTO is that it has not been able to achieve very much since it was created. The negotiators have not been able to come together. Part of that is probably due to everybody trying to get consensus around all these issues is extremely difficult. A second area that the WTO is known for is to basically create an enforcement mechanism or a workout mechanism to ensure that countries are upholding their trade laws. This, however, has been undermined over the last few years because there were disputes about how what actually is called the dispute mechanism works. The Trump administration took a view that they did not want to appoint anybody to this court, and that is a court, which has actually rendered the appellate body somewhat useless. There's actually been lots of different proposals on how to fix it, but they have made very, very little progress over the last four or five years even though the Biden administration says that it does not have the same reservations as the Trump administration, they have not been able to come up with mechanisms that will fix the system. 
So overall, two of the biggest areas for the WTO have actually proven to be ineffective trade negotiations and dispute mechanisms. So what is the WTO up to this week? They are trying to address some really tough problems, including how do you open up trade on pandemic medicines? How do you deal with issues such as fisheries? But also, how do you deal with the addressing the food crisis? And that's because another aspect of the food crisis has been a return to what is known as protectionism. In other words, basically putting up borders and mechanisms to stop exports of food from your country to another because of concerns that it's going to harm your own country. Let me just talk about two current negotiations the WTO is trying to work on to help address the food crisis. One is finding a permanent solution to something called a public stockholding program. This is basically countries stockpile food to ensure food security for their country. They do this by purchasing, stockpiling, and then distributing food to people in need. The criticism of this mechanism is that it may distort trade if food prices are fixed by governments rather than kept at current market prices. So they've been trying to fix this, but it is a very difficult problem and it's highly technical. Another way for the WTO to help alleviate the food crisis is through exempting humanitarian aid organizations from export restrictions. I mean, on the face of it, it seems like a no-brainer. You're going to try to help humanitarians provide food to people that are really hungry. But again, protectionism is not always easy to overcome because there are definitely domestic political concerns around the world. The WTO then is trying to deal with this and trying to show that it can be effective in actually one of the most global crises that we're about to face, which is a food crisis. While the WTO, unfortunately, is also trying to show that it's not going to be a failure on a different crisis, which was the pandemic, obviously, we're hopeful that the WTO negotiators can find a way to address their own concerns, but find a solution that helps to deal with these two very global problems. So let me deal with the three, two, one. My three takeaways, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact for the week. Due to climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of people experiencing food insecurities has drastically increased as food prices continue to climb. In 2022, they've climbed over 50%, and supply chain disruptions and natural disasters have led to food shortages in many countries. Next, this crisis has been accelerated by the Russia-Ukraine situation as both of these countries are big exporters of many food commodities such as wheat. In fact, some, due to the war in Ukraine and the other previous problems, are calling this crisis potentially the next world health crisis. And third, finding relief mechanisms to global food insecurities is proving very difficult. One solution to ease global food supply shortages is implementing trade negotiations that allow food to flow more freely. However, finding a consensus among countries is going to be a tricky thing. Two things to watch. One is the summit I mentioned at the end of the month for the G7. What initiatives and the ability to execute on these initiatives will the G7 come up with to try to address the food problems that we see in the world? And two, will the WTO meetings this week jumpstart a push for new and better mechanisms to address trade negotiations and protectionism when it comes to such critical areas such as food and medicine for that matter? My one sports topic today 
is the Stanley Cup Finals, which have begun this week. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with ice hockey, the Stanley Cup is the finals of the National Hockey League's Championship Series. It's been around for a long time, and if you haven't seen the trophy, the Stanley Cup trophy is one of the most amazing things there is. It's huge. There are two teams battling it out on the ice. First is the Colorado Avalanche, which if you believe the betting markets at the start of the year would have been the number one team to win the championship. And that's the way actually it's kind of been playing out as they have been putting on a show over the regular season and through the playoffs to basically show that they're the best team in hockey. The second is the Tampa Bay Lightning. Again, if you looked at the betting markets, they were the number two team. So this is kind of a rare thing in major sports, which is to have the number one and number two teams before the season begins are actually in the finals. And that's what we have. Now, if Tampa Bay wins, they'd be the first team to win three Stanley Cups in a row since the New York Islanders did it in the early 1980s. So in other words, it's been 40 years since this happened. It's hard to predict who's going to win this series. I've always found ice hockey, and especially during the playoffs, to be really unpredictable. It usually depends on somebody having a hot goalie. Tampa Bay has one of the best goalies in the country, although Colorado's is very good as well. But at the same time, maybe Colorado, which has been clearly on a roll and has put together maybe some of the best hockey that anyone has seen since the Edmonton Oilers back in the late 1980s with their legendary player, Wayne Gretzky. So we're looking forward to seeing Can Colorado make it to the top or will Tampa Bay show that they can be back-to-back-to-back champions? Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next week for another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.